I'd like to begin this morning from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 to introduce what I really want to speak to you about to be found in the Gospel of John. But in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is a principle that you need to keep in mind as you read and study the scriptures and as you actually consider the things of life. The Lord said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much are my ways and your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. What that's telling me is that I'm a man, and I'm not God, and God is in heaven, and God does things contrary to the way I would do it. God does things that's totally different than the way man normally thinks. The natural mind simply cannot comprehend the mind of God to begin with, except that God give us understanding. Now, with that in mind, I'd like to go to the Gospel of John, take a look at two men that God used that, to me, is very uh, out of the ordinary. And these two men is Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea. Now, in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, you'll find where these two men join together. But I, I want to go back to John chapter 3 and speak about Nicodemus just a little bit first. Now, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea both were members of a ruling, governing ruling body called the Sanhedrin Council. Now, the word Sanhedrin is not found in the scripture, but when it refers to this council, it will use the word council, like maybe the city council, you know, except this governing body of men, it was made up of a hundred men and had a president. The president was always the high priest. Whoever the high priest was, was the president of this ruling body. And you've probably heard that expression a number of times over the years about the Sanhedrin Council. And this Sanhedrin Council was a constant foe of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were enemies to Christ. And you find that both Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea both belong to this council. But they were exceptions to what I've just told you about the council. And we go to John chapter 3, and we have Nicodemus brought to our attention. And Nicodemus will be referred to in the scripture, all in the Gospel of John, three different times, in John 3, John 7, and John chapter 19. He'll have a label uh, that the Lord gave him, and that label was the same who came to Jesus by night. In all three cases, when it's introduced in those passages, it says in Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus by night. So that's the way he's introduced here in John chapter 3. Now, you might wonder why Nicodemus came to the Lord at night. Well, we're not told specifically, but if you understand who the Pharisees were and understand something about the council, it'll give you, I think, a good idea. And we are told that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, if I was uh, given a, a class, a Bible class on the New Testament to a group of students, probably the first thing I would do would give them a list of people that they're going to read about in the New Testament and try to give a definition of those people. If you don't really know anything about what a Pharisee was, then saying that Nicodemus was a Pharisee really not going to mean anything to you. But the word Pharisee means a separatist. They lived separately, you might say. They considered themselves to be different. They considered themselves really to be better than anyone else. And this is illustrated, I think, very clearly in Luke chapter 18, when two men went up to the temple to pray. And the first to pray was a Pharisee, and the second was a publican. 
Well, a publican was, uh, not all publicans were tax collectors, but the tax collectors were taken from a group of people called publicans. So that helps you there too. But anyway, this Pharisee starts off his prayer. They both went to the temple to pray at the same time. And the Pharisee starts off his prayer by saying, I thank you, Lord. I'm not like other men are. Now that tells a whole, the whole story. I thank you I'm not like other men are. Then he goes on to say, other men are unjust. Other men are extortioners. Other men are adulterous. And that's probably certainly true about a lot of people. But this Pharisee didn't consider himself to be that way. He says, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes and all that I possess. Uh, the word I is there five times in a prayer that consists of 34 words. That's what a Pharisee was. Uh, that's about the best illustration I can give you what a, a Pharisee was. They even wore special garments to distinguish them from the other people. Uh, garments that would go all the way down to the foot, and they had these little phylacteries, which are little boxes they would wear on their shoulders, and they would have verses of Scripture that was written on pieces of paper and put in those boxes. And they appeared to be more pious, more godly uh, than anybody else. I like to say that they wore their religion rather than living their religion. But there were some exceptions to this. Sometimes we put a label on a certain category of people and paint them with a wide brush, you know, as if everybody is exactly alike. Nicodemus was not like what I just told you. I know that but what I read about this man in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler among the Jews. And Christ will tell him a little bit later on, you're a master in Israel. Now that tells me he was a member of this council I was telling you about. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. I believe Nicodemus was also a wealthy man, as we'll see a little bit later on. Nicodemus comes to the Lord at night. Now, Nicodemus being a teacher of the law himself, a ruler and a master in Israel, his day would have been pretty much occupied teaching. And we know that the Lord Jesus Christ never had any idle time. Uh, Christ was always teaching and preaching and performing miracles. And so he'd have been occupied. For that, those reasons, it could have been Nicodemus came at night. But since it's said of Nicodemus three different times who came to Jesus by night, I think he goes beyond that. See, it would not have been very suitable for Nicodemus to be seen talking with Jesus. Not a man in his position. A man that was a ruler in Israel. A man that was a master in Israel. A Pharisee. Because the Pharisees also was a constant enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, always trying to give him trouble uh, every opportunity they had, and they, they found plenty of opportunities. So for him being a Pharisee and being part of this ruling body of people, the Sanhedrin, it just wasn't, wouldn't have been kosher, I guess you might say, for him to be seen communicating and talking with Jesus, especially at length. So I believe this is the real reason that Nicodemus came at night. He came when no one else would be watching, no one else would be looking. There would be a, a privacy between him and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes to him, a Pharisee, a rule among the Jews, and he comes and dresses Jesus as rabbi. That was a common title of the Jewish people that day, which Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew to call no man rabbi, for you have one master, and that's Christ, and call no man master again. Uh, and, and so there's men who go by these different names uh, that the Lord specifically said not to call men by these names. 
But you got to read that to know that. And a lot of people don't read it, so they don't know it. So he calls Jesus Rabbi. It's kind of like when the Lord uh, communicated with that rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, to begin with, addressed Jesus uh, as being good. He said, good master. And the Lord asked him, he says, why are you calling me good? There's none good, none but God. Now, that's a statement of man's depravity. Jesus said, the only one that's good is God. There is nobody else good, so why are you calling me good? Uh, if you call me good uh, because you think there's good in men apart from God, then you don't understand depravity. If you're calling me good because you recognize me as God manifest in the flesh, well, then uh, that would be okay. But why call me good? So he calls Jesus here, Rabbi, and he says, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man could do the miracles thou doest, except God be with him. Now we see here Nicodemus came to the Lord at night as an inquirer. Now many people came to the Lord Jesus Christ for many reasons. And most of it came to Christ, came because they had a sickness or a physical affliction of some kind. And they knew that Christ had performed miracles. They were hoping that a miracle could be performed on their behalf. Uh, you find numerous cases of this. Some that were blind came to him. Some that were lepers came to him. Uh, we find in Matthew chapter 8 where there was a, a certain ruler came to him, a half of his servant that was sick. Uh, we find where there was a centurion that came to him. Uh, there was a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years that came to him. And the list goes on and on and on of people that came to Jesus. They came to him recognizing him as being the great physician. And that was a good thing. That was a very good thing. Um, but you know, when it comes to the subject of coming to Jesus, this is an important subject. And let me just uh, sidetrack just a little bit here on that. You find verses like John 6, 44, when Jesus said, no man can come to me. Now, since people were coming to him all the time, how do you reconcile such a statement? Because the Lord is talking about coming to him in the sense of being connected, related to him. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. This coming to Jesus requires being drawn to Jesus by the omnipotent power of God. And in John 6, 37, the Lord said, All the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that comes to me, otherwise cast out. Now, he's talking about something totally different from what I was talking about just a little bit earlier here. In uh, John chapter 5 and verse 30, the Lord Jesus Christ said to a group of, of uh, Jews that uh, were so angry at Christ that they had designs to crucify him or to, to take his life. And we find where the Lord said, And ye will not come to me. And then Jesus spoke to a different kind of people in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now he's talking to people that feel the weight of sin, people that feel uh, themselves to be weak and frail and undone and, and just not acceptable in the sight of God from their own perspective, from their own point of view. But he says, people like that, you come to me and you'll find rest. And so people came to Jesus for various reasons. Now here we find Nicodemus coming to Jesus, but he's not afflicted. Uh, physically. He, he's, he's not blind. He's not deaf. He's not lame. He comes to Jesus for a different reason. He comes to Jesus to inquire. He comes to Jesus to learn. He came by night. He says, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher that's come from God. 
And of course, Jesus taught every single day. That was true. And no man can do the miracles thou doest, except God be with him. Of course, that was true too. Uh, if you read over in Acts 10, 38, you'll find where the apostle Peter is speaking to a man by the name of Cornelius. And he said, uh, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, how God had anointed him with power and of the Holy Ghost, and he went about doing good and delivering those who were oppressed with the devil, for God was with him. God the Father was with him as God the Son. At the same time, Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. So Nicodemus has got this correct. He was a teacher that came from God, but more than just a teacher. No man could do the miracles he did except God be with him. That certainly was true. So Nicodemus recognized this as a miracle working man. Nicodemus recognized this as a teacher above all teachers. And so he comes to him by night. And the Lord replies like this. Now Nicodemus does not ask a question at this point. He just made a statement. Thou art a teacher come from God. No man can do the miracles thou doest except God be with him. But Jesus is going to teach him something about the new birth. Jesus knew what he needed to learn here. And he says unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, which means truly, truly, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not heaven itself. It's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that can only be seen with spiritual eyes. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is going to introduce the subject, the very important subject of being born again, which means literally be born from above. He's going to teach this lesson to Nicodemus. But do us well likewise to understand the lesson that he taught here. Uh, you can buy all kinds of books at the bookstore about how to be born again. All we got to do is just read the Bible. Uh, just read the Bible. You don't have to buy those books. You don't have to just waste your money buying all those kind of books because the Bible is going to tell you this, and John chapter 3 specifically is going to teach you this lesson here. The Lord's going to teach you. I think the Lord knew how to, um, how to born people of the Spirit, don't you? I think the Lord, I'd recommend the Lord as being the expert in this particular subject. And so he says unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Here's one of those excepts. He cannot see the kingdom of God, except he be born again. Now, Nicodemus is a little confused about this. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus is thinking natural birth. He's thinking the physical. Uh, how can a man enter back in his mother's womb the second time? The Lord said, fairly, fairly, I say unto you, except a man be born of water, even the spirit. It takes the spirit to be born again, and the spirit is what cleanses the, the, in, the inward person of the child of God. Uh, he cannot, again, enter into the kingdom of heaven. He can't see it and he can't enter it unless he's experienced this new birth of being born from above. And he says, Marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be born again. He is not telling Nicodemus that he has not been born again, that he specifically needs to be born again. Nicodemus has already given the evidence of being born again and coming to Jesus by night and making these two statements and inquiring of him. And we'll see his life un, uh, revealed to us further on. But he is stating a principle and a fact here. And so he says, Marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be born again. Now let me just say this this morning. At the end of time, when the Lord Jesus Christ brings his family into glory, nobody will be in heaven that did not experience the new birth here on the earth. 
And anybody experienced a new birth here on this earth will be in glory when the Lord comes and gets his family, okay? Because God is the one who borns his children of the Spirit of God, and they all shall be born of the Spirit of God sometime between their conception and their death. Many, many numerous verses of Scripture used to prove that. But I will go to Romans 8, 29. Both of whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. They might be the firstborn among many brethren. And when he did predestinate, them he also called. And the word called here means that he has called them from a state of death in sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all that he foreknew, he predestinated. All he predestinated, he called. And of whom he called, he also justified. That took place on Calvary on the cross. And when he justified, then he also glorified. That's going to happen at the end of time, the second coming of Christ, when he resurrects the bodies of the saints of God, and they'll all be glorified, fashioned like the glorious body of the Son of God. Nobody will be in glory unless they've been born of the Spirit of God. Jesus makes this very clear. He says, marvel not at this. He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. And you hear the sound thereof, and knoweth not where it goeth or where it cometh, so is everyone that's born of the Spirit of God. No one was ever born of the Spirit of God different from anybody else. That's one thing we all have in common. One thing all the family of God has in common, their experience of grace is exactly the same. It's identical no matter when they lived. Whether it's time from Adam to Moses or Moses to Christ or Christ is first coming to his second coming, all the elect family of God are born of the Spirit of God exactly the same way and they're passive in this work. Not something you merit, not something you do to bring it about. You're a passive in this work. God is active and you're a passive. God speaks and you hear and you respond. Marvel not at this. He says that which is born of of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We're talking about two different types of births here. Now he says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. The word listeth means pleaseth. In this sense, the wind is sovereign. Just like God is sovereign, the spirit is sovereign. Do you, have you ever just started the wind? Oh, you may turn the fan on and stir the air. <laughs> I'm, not about talking, I'm not talking about stirring air. I'm talking about starting wind. Have you ever started the wind? Oh, I, I can tell you, uh, working in the tobacco fields in midsummer, when the tobacco plants are this high, high on your head and you're right in the middle of it out there in 95 degree weather, you would start the wind if you could. You'd start it if you could. I couldn't, so I didn't. <laughs> not only can you not start the wind, you cannot stop the wind. If I could stop the wind and I was hitting a golf ball off the tee and it was dead in my face, I'd stop it so I at least hit my tee shot. But I can't stop the wind. I cannot direct the wind. And that's the way the Spirit of God operates. You can't stop, start the Spirit, you cannot stop the Spirit, and you cannot direct the Spirit. Marvel not that I see you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And you hear the sound of it and knoweth not where it cometh. Or where it goeth, so is everyone that's born of the Spirit of God. That's the lesson the Lord is teaching unto Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, ruling Jews, master in Israel. Nicodemus responded like this, How shall these things be? And the Lord said, If you, being a master of Israel, knoweth not these things, how shall you understand if I tell you these things? Him being a master of Israel did not give him the comprehension or the understanding of this very important word just because of his position. 
So Nicodemus is given this lesson by the Lord. Now we don't hear anything else about Nicodemus for a while. Nicodemus, I believe like Judge Armathia, is a, what you might call a secret disciple. And he's going to grow though. And we come in to John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, you're going to find where the council is met and they're discussing what they can do concerning this man Jesus. But I want to go back to the 30th verse just for a minute. And you're going to read something where it says, And men sought to take him, but could not, because his time had not yet come. I want to ask you a question. Why couldn't they take him? Why couldn't they take him? It's just one of him. Many of them. Why couldn't they take him? Well, of course, number one is his time had not yet come, so it was impossible for them to take him. But apart from that, why could they not take him? A couple of verses later, we read where the Pharisees and the scribes, chief priests and scribes, send some soldiers to take him. Now we got the military involved. We got soldiers. But you come down there a little bit further, and you read where it says, and men sought to take him, but they could not. Why could they not take him? What was keeping them from taking him? It's one of him, many of them. Why could they not take him? So the officers came back, and they told their leaders, they said, well, their leaders said, why have you not brought him? That's the question. Why have you not brought him? And they said, never man spake like this man spake. That's why they couldn't take him. You get the answer there? Never man spake like this man. The officers, the soldiers came back without him because this man spake like no other man spake. Now this is one of three never man statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. Another one is when the Lord sent his disciples into the city to get that ass, the colt, the fold of an ass, and to bring him to him, that he might ride triumphantly into Jerusalem as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But something said about this animal, it says, bring that ass, the colt, the fold of an ass to me, of whom never man sat. No man had ever sat on this animal, which means he was not broken. Which means normally if someone got on him and him not being broke, he would start bucking, but he didn't buck one time when Christ got on him. And the third time is, and we'll get to this a little later if the Lord will bless, is in John chapter 19 when Joseph Arimathea is going to put the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in his own new tomb where a man never laid. Man never sat, man never laid, and never man spake like this man spake. There's three never mans concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about never man spake like this man spake, and that's why they couldn't take him, that's pretty intriguing to me. That's pretty amazing to me. He could be that powerful with just the words that he spake. But when he spake words, my friends, um, other men stood back in awe. Do you remember in John chapter 18 when they came to the Garden of Gethsemane to get the Lord Jesus Christ? And he says, Whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And she says, I am he, what happened? The men fell backwards as if they were dead because Jesus said three words, I am he. Never man spake like this man. And do you have the power in your voice to speak like that and cause people to react that way? I don't think so. When the Lord Jesus Christ was asleep in the bottom of the ship in the storm on the sea and the disciples came and woke him up and Christ came to the upper deck there 
He spoke to the waves. He spoke to the sea. He spoke to the storm. There's a great storm, and Christ spoke to it, and there's immediate calm. There's a great storm and a great calm. Christ spoke, and the wind quit blowing, and the seas became immediately calm. Never man spake like this man spake. Have you ever witnessed anything like that? Have you ever been in a storm and thought you could just uh, speak that way? <laughs> Brother Eddie Huff was telling me, uh, sent me a few days ago, they have a place down there in Florida, and thankfully, I want to say this morning, uh, the storm did not damage their property any at all. We're very thankful for that. But he told me about one man who told him recently when they were talking about storms, he says, well, I just, we just command for those storms not to come through here. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody uh, being that ignorant? Uh, can you just imagine somebody making a statement like that? And I don't think Brother Eddie knew how to respond to it. Uh, I mean, when somebody, that's why the Bible says, answer a fool according to his folly. And it says, answer not a fool according to his folly. In this case, you just don't answer him. Anybody make a statement like that, you just don't answer him. And the man seemed to be serious. It seemed like he thought it had worked in times past. He probably really thinks it now. <laughs> it didn't damage the, the park in which they have their place. No, only Christ can do that. Never spake man like this man spake. You see it in the work of creation. Go to Psalms 33 and verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and by the breath of his mouth were the host of them uh, created. And then in verse 9, he says, He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Notice, he spake, and it was done. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The word for God is a, a, a word that indicates plurality. In other words, this is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all speaking in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So you got the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is giving credit, you might say, for this. But I go to John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. That's the second person of the Godhead. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Well, that's the force of the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. That's Christ. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Never man spake like this man. He just spake the world into existence. When it comes to regeneration, the new birth again. Look in John 5, 25, and the Lord said, And verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Never man spake like this man spake. And I, it's very important you understand what's not said here. He did not say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth the words of the Son of God, he that heareth the words of the Son of God. He says, they, he that heareth the voice of the Son of God. You've not heard the voice of the Son of God here this morning, but you've heard the words of the Son of God plenty. I've, I've given you plenty of the words of the Son of God. Men are not born by the words of the Son of God. They're born again by the voice of the Son of God. It's the voice that gives life. It's not the words plus something you do. It's the voice of the Son of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming. Now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. When Jesus came to the grave of Lazarus, disciples were there. 
Jesus called his name. He called his name personally and individually. He says, Lazarus, come forth. What would have happened if Jesus had said, come forth? The entire cemetery would have opened up. Not only there, I think that every cemetery that existed in that day and age would have opened up and the bodies of all the saints would have come out. But Jesus didn't want all the bodies of saints to come out, just one. His name's Lazarus. He calls him by name, personally and individually. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. You know why? Because never man spake like this man spake. What about when the Lord comes again? What is it going to take to get you out of the grave? Well, it's going, it's going to take the same thing to get you out of the grave that got you out of a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ. It's going to take the voice of the Son of God. John 5 and 28. Jesus said, marvel not at this. The hour is coming. They are in the grave shall hear his voice. Never man spake like this man spake. So why did they not take him? They sought to get him. Could not. We're told several times in John's gospel, twice right here in John chapter 7, they sought to take him and they could not. They come to take him, they could not. They sent officers to go get him and they come back empty handed and the only answer they had was, never man spake like this man spake. <laughs> Powerful, right? Powerful. And then you're going to find where the council was discussing what to do about this man and Nicodemus shows up. Now, this has all preceded this. Nicodemus shows up. And Nicodemus is going to raise a point of order with these men right here because they're devising a plan to try the Lord Jesus Christ unscripturally. And he refers to them out of the book of Deuteronomy where they try all cases, small and great. They're not to show respect to persons. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established, and they don't have any witnesses. Nicodemus comes forth. He's bold enough to come forth here on this occasion. And it says, Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night. He couldn't raise his point of order if he was not one of them. In fact, it says he was one of them. And then they respond to him. And they say unto him, where in the scripture is it that he shall come out of Galilee? There is no scripture that says he shall come out of Galilee. Well, there was plenty. You go back to Isaiah chapter 9, and you will read where he should come out of Galilee. That was fulfilled. If you read Matthew 4.15, it specifically refers you back to Isaiah chapter 9. There's a number of references. You know where Jonah was from, by the way? He was a prophet. You know where Jonah was from? Who's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ? He was from Galilee. And so these Pharisees, this ruling group here, the Sanhedrin, who is supposed to be the most intellectual, the most uh, you know, knowledge about all these things are very ignorant about what the scriptures taught concerning Christ coming out of Galilee. Nicodemus comes forth. He, he's bold. He comes forth. Now, in John chapter 3, he spoke to the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 7, he spoke in support of the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, doth our law allow, you know, and a man be charged without hearing what he has to say and find out what he's done. The answer to that would be no, the law would not allow that. That's just exactly what they were about to do. Nicodemus got, he got, he got feedback, didn't he? <laughs> oh, they rebuked him sharply, but Nicodemus was right. Nicodemus knew the scriptures about this, and they did not. Then we come over to John chapter 19. And we're going to read about a man by the name of Joseph Arimathea. 
who likewise was a part of this ruling body of the Sanhedrin Council. Joseph Ar- there are six things told us of Joseph Arimathea. Now, the Gospel of John is the only Gospel that records anything about Nicodemus, but Joseph Arimathea is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels. And you put all four Gospels together, here's what you find out about Joseph Arimathea. Arimathea was a city of the Jews, uh, probably about 15 miles or so northwest of Jerusalem. That's where he's from. The first thing we're told about this man is that he was rich. And this is important because Isaiah 53, 9 uh, reads like this. It says, He shall make his grave with the wicked, and in his, uh, it shall make his death with the wicked, and with the rich, make his grave with the wicked, and in his, with the rich in his death. It's something close to that. <laughs> the wicked and the rich are brought to our attention here. When Christ was crucified, he was crucified between two wicked men. Two thieves. But his body's going to be taken off the cross by a rich man. And so this verse is fulfilled right here in Isaiah 53, 9. Joseph Arimathea was a rich man. Joseph Arimathea was a disciple. And we're told he was a secret disciple. The same reason Nicodemus came to Christ by night. It's the same reason why Joseph Arimathea has not come forth yet. That's two things about him. Third thing about him is he's known as a, he was known as an honorable counselor. That means he had a good reputation of being honest and truthful and trying cases on merit, so to speak, and giving advice based upon the law of God. He had that report. He was an honorable counselor. And he also waited for the kingdom of God. That means he was a diligent student of the Old Testament. He searched the scriptures to find out when Christ would come. Just like Simeon did in Luke chapter 2. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means he was uh, knowing that it could take place at any time. And he knew enough about the scriptures to anticipate that. Same thing with Joseph Arimathea. He was an honorable counselor and he waited for the kingdom of God. You know what we're waiting for? We're waiting for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't we? We're waiting for that. Anticipating that. Uh, expecting that. You know, sometimes my expectations don't get fulfilled. Sometimes what I'm anticipating uh, doesn't come to pass. But I'm telling you this this morning, here's one thing I'm anticipating, one thing I'm expecting, and that is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to be disappointed. This man is waiting for the kingdom of God. Anna was waiting for the kingdom of God. Simeon was waiting for the kingdom of God. Here's a few people who were familiar enough with the word of God to anticipate the arrival of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this tells me a lot about Joseph Arimathea. Also says he was a good man and just. Now, the Bible tells us, as I've already mentioned earlier, Jesus asked the rich young ruler, why callest me thou good? By nature, there is none good. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. So there's no goodness in any man apart from Christ, apart from the divine nature that God gives a man in regeneration. No man is good, but this man is called good. There's a few people in the Bible that's described that way. He's one of them. He's talking about what's inside the man. This is what the man was inwardly. How was he, how could you say that, Brother Lawrence, based on what you already said, because God made him good. <laughs> God makes you good. That's the only reason anybody is good. God makes you good when he borns you the spirit of God. He puts his divine nature within your heart, within your soul. This man was good. 
This is what he is in himself. But he was also just. This is what the man was to other people. Being just is what he was to other people as a result of what he was on the inside. In other words, the, the inward man being good is the root and being just is the fruit. And before you can have the kind of fruit I'm talking about and be called just, you've got to have a root, you know, of goodness that God plants inside of you again when he borns you the Spirit of God. So he's just and he's good. He's rich. He's a disciple. He's an honorable counselor. He's waiting for the kingdom of God. All these things we're told about in Joseph of Arimathea. But we're also told he's a secret disciple. In John chapter 19, of course you find this again in the other Gospels, you're going to find where Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate. And the Bible says, but one writer, he begged the body of Jesus. Another writer, he besought the body of Jesus. Another one says, he craved the body of Jesus. So we should be able to take about that. He came to get the body of Jesus with great passion. He wanted to be sure the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was take, be taken off that cross and properly prepared and properly buried. You know what happened to people who were crucified and nobody claimed the bodies, which happened oftentimes? They were just taken off and just thrown over into a trash heap and just left. If nobody claimed the body, it was taken off and just discarded without any, uh, you know, without any care or respect whatsoever. So God has selected a rich man. And this rich man just happens to have a new tomb. This rich man has carved out of the rock a new tomb where he's planning, no doubt, for his body to be laid at some point down the road when he passes or departs from this life. But he's going to give it up. He's going to give it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who came this world from the womb of a virgin, and he was in there for nine months, is going to spend three days and three nights in, the, uh, you know, in a virgin tomb. He came forth from a virgin womb. He's going to spend three days and three nights in a virgin tomb. You might say, what do you mean nobody had ever laid there, brother? See, a lot of times when they hewn out of a rock like that, a sepulcher, more than one person could be buried in there. But this is brand new. Nobody's ever been buried in there. Joseph comes and he begs the body of the Lord Jesus Christ from Pilate. Wonder what success he might have thought he was going to have. When he first came to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, Pilate was kind of puzzled, thinking uh, there's enough time gone by for him to be dead. So he sent the centurion. He says, go and check on the body. And the centurion went and came back and says, he's dead. Pilate had sent Soldiers to break the legs of all three men. They broke the legs of two men. Why didn't they break the legs of the third man? Because he was already dead. The Lord Jesus Christ had power to lay down his life. He had power to take it again. And before the soldiers came to, to break his legs, he was already dead. If they had broke his legs, the scriptures would have been broken. But Christ said the scriptures cannot be broken. That is, every verse of scripture in the Old Testament that was a prophecy had to be fully, completely, totally, and perfectly fulfilled or the scriptures would be broken. But they were not broken. But there's another scripture in the book of Zechariah that says his side shall be pierced. Pilate gave no such command. Pilate did not tell those soldiers to pierce his side. The soldiers pierced his side. Had they not pierced his side, the scriptures would have been broken. So they did something they were not commanded to do and did not do all that they were commanded to do. And as a result of that, the scriptures were fulfilled. All the providence of God. 
the mystery of God's power and his providence, I'm telling you, isn't it just wonderful? Isn't it just glorious? Isn't it just amazing? Isn't it just spectacular? I can't find the right word here. <laughs> you know, when you consider the movements of God and the providential blessings of God, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. God selects Nicodemus. He selects Joseph Arimathea. And uh, they're going to wind up being together over here to take care of the body of his blessed son that was crucified hanging upon a cross. These men come from the ruling body of the Sanhedrin Council, which were the constant foes of Jesus. And yet God selects two out of that group. Out of that group of 100 men, God selects two, Nicodemus and Joseph. I don't know this, but I kind of feel quite sure they probably knew each other. But there's uh, no scripture to tell us that they had pre-planned anything or whatever. But on the day that Joseph Arimathea begs for the body of Jesus, you find Pilate sending the uh, centurion to find if he's dead. The report comes back, he's dead. And he gave permission unto Joseph Arimathea to take the body off the cross. And when he takes the body off the cross, and I don't have any doubt he has some assistance in this. Nicodemus shows up for the third time. Nicodemus, remember what his name means? It means innocent blood. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only man who ever lived with innocent blood. And this man whose name means innocent blood is going to play a very pivotal uh, uh, you know, role in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to Jesus in John 3. In John 7, he spoke on behalf of Jesus. And in John 19, he's going to help Joseph Arimathea bury Jesus. These two men will work together. What's, what's the role of Nicodemus? He brings a hundred pound weight of Marian alloys. This was to uh, go along with, uh, and Joseph Arimathea brought clean linen. And the clean linen now is filled with the alloys and the myrrh for the fragrance. And they're going to wrap the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in this, and they're going to bury it in Joseph's new tomb in that sepulcher where a man never had laid. Now, we're told it's a hundred pound weight. And for my studies on this, that was far more than they needed. That was enough to use for many men. It also was very costly. That's why I know Nicodemus had to be a wealthy man. Uh, drink a hundred pound weight of myrrh and alloy. See, myrrh and alloy were not just spices, they were the chief spices. You say, well, Brother Lawrence, how do you know that? I know that by reading the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 14, when it speaks about the numerous spices of which it says myrrh and frankincense and alloys were the chiefest. So Nicodemus brought the best, in other words. Nicodemus brought the most costly. He brought the best. I, I know... I know a little bit about human nature. If I don't know now, I'm just never going to learn. <laughs> I've had to deal with it all the days of my life. I have to contend with it every single day that I live. And you know, I know how the human mind works. <laughs> I've got one. I really I do have a human mind. I know how it works. You know, if you ever had an impression to give somebody something, and before you give it to them, you kind of kept thinking about it and thought you'd just kind of cut it down a little bit. 
And then you kept thinking about it, and then you decided you'd just cut it down a little bit more. <laughs> now, I recommend going with your first impulse. Go with your first feeling about this. I think I've told you about this before, but it just comes to my mind right now. Of this man was in great need, and another man knew about it. And he sent him a large contribution, a large check in the mail. And the man got down the mailbox and opened it up. He just couldn't believe his eyes that somebody would send that much money to him to help him out. And he contacted the man to tell him that he just didn't feel like he could take it. He wasn't worthy about it. And the man said, let me tell you what you do. You get down to the bank as fast as you can and deposit it there. He said, it took me five trips in the mailbox to mail it. That's how human nature operates. Nicodemus didn't bring less than the best. Nicodemus brought the best. He brought the most costly. He brought far more than he needed to get the job done. See, if you do that, then you can be rest assured you don't bring too little. If you know you bring too much, you know you're not bringing too little. That's the best way to do it. So he brought far more than he needed. The abundance of it, the costliness of it, showed what was right here in the heart of Nicodemus. God used Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, both men, members of the Sanhedrin council that was always at odds with Jesus. They were his constant enemies. And God just reached into their circle and took two men out of it, but Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea and they worked together to take the body of our Lord Jesus Christ off that cross, give it a proper burial, wrapped it in linen, saturated with those spices, the myrrh and the alloys, and then they placed in that barred tomb and rolled a great stone to the mouth of it. It would remain that way for three days and three nights. And then when the sisters came on the, after the third day and third, third night, they found the stone was rolled away, and the Savior had come out the linen cloth was still there just like it was when he was wrapped in it.